B. Initial differentiation of the organism. Many foolish and opaque theories burden old-fashioned psychology. The theory of a body and soul relationship is chief among these. It taught that the relationship between the idea, the divine primordial image, and the bodily image was imprinted in an ethereal substance. The relationship of various regions of the soul was expressed in part consciously, in part unconsciously. It would perhaps be better to say that it was not really understood at all. Thus, for instance, if the relationship between the conscious mental function of the brain and the unconscious digestive function of the stomach were established, it was called a body-soul relation. This was expressed as follows. The soul's thinking is influenced by nutritive processes by the spirit of the blood. This, and similar cases, did not actually demonstrate any contrast between soul and body, but only a contrast between various conscious and unconscious regions of the living soul. This erroneous so-called body-soul doctrine cannot clarify the actual body-soul relationship at all. It has led to untold errors in the field of psychology. This doctrine can only be cleared up and entirely eliminated by completely clarifying the theory of the structure of the various spheres of man's life and systems. Psychology need not pay attention to that which could truly be called a relationship between body and soul. Life alone is the subject of psychology. Life, where the soul acts and is revealed. The idea and the ethereal substance in every living thing must in actuality be treated as a whole, as being eternally inseparable. If we therefore, in thought, really divide matter, as Aristotle calls it, from living form, if we separately consider all the chemical elements that flow within the forms of organic life, carbon, calcium, oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, sodium, iron and chlorine, etc., how does this really concern life and the processes of soul and mind? All this comes to life only under the influence of the idea that orders it into organic form. Insofar, however, as it serves form, it is inseparable from what Aristotle calls form. It was only this form's different aspects that were erroneously contrasted as body and soul. The usual body and soul contrasts, thinking and feeling, muscular movement and blood circulation, are really only two different spheres of the conscious and unconscious life of the soul, where idea and ethereal substance act inseparably, as a unity. We can avoid all these errors if our conception of the structure of the various spheres of life is sufficiently grounded. This structure, which gradually emerges from the realm of the unconscious according to a higher divine plan, is always maintained, even in the innermost vital union of the parts. Here again we must keep in mind that all established divisions, e.g. individual organic systems, are merely artificial aids to facilitate analysis and understanding. The vascular system, the nervous system, the respiratory and digestive systems are not actual independent entities, for they exist only in conjunction with all the others. With these reservations, however, examination of each as a separate unit is acceptable and even necessary to make as clear as possible the psychic significance of the various ways these systems play a role. 
now conscious, now unconscious, in the life of the developed soul. The vast amount of material that recent studies have yielded on the development of the organism can only be mentioned briefly here. The most minor physiological fact has some psychological significance. The further the psychologist delves into this realm, the more his knowledge will grow. We should first consider how the individual radiations contained in the primordial image appear in various organic systems. We must remember that material can only develop organically in the shape of the original form, the same monad or original cell in which the life idea of the organism first appears in space as a microscopic germ cell. This form is repeated numberless times during development. The developing organism thus first appears in the form of innumerable original cells or monads that derive from the liquid element. Each of them has a life of its own, fulfilling its own life cycle, coming into being, perishing again, and being replaced by new monads. These monads are all the more uniform, the nearer they are in time to the origin of the general formation. The further away from it they are, the more they become individually modified and blended into larger structures that so finally and blended into larger structures so that finally their individual identity is completely lost. An even stronger and more pronounced individuality is indeed the essence and aim of any manifestation of an idea. Thus, while certain groups of these monads portray one, others another, radiation of the idea, individual lives, individual life circles appear in the expanding and increasingly amalgamating process of these original cells. We call these new groupings organic systems. Either they contain merely a radiation of the unconscious life of the soul, or else a Promethean preparation for the appearance of a radiation that will emerge as consciousness. Before discussing these special developments, a characteristic of these processes must be pointed out, which is most significant for the creativity of our divine primordial image. The miracle of the earliest structure of our own and similar organisms is like a crystal that sets and takes form in a flash and afterward continues to grow and change. In this connection, physiology reels off phenomena that must have a fairy tale quality for anyone encountering them for the first time. For instance, we can gain an approximate idea of the speed of these processes when we learn that, from its embryonic beginning, our own body increases more than 500 times in length and more than 25,000 times in size within the course of a single lunar revolution. It increases in size at least 50 times during the second lunar month. At the same time, both the outer shape of the body and the individual inner organic systems are continuously being formed with the most extraordinary purposefulness and delicacy. Microscopic study of developing animal organisms has given science accurate information on the immense speed of this growth. We may conclude from this that the extraordinary force displayed is evidence of an entirely unconscious divine life. This force, innate in the divine principle of the soul, absolutely dominates and pervades matter, 
it creates while still completely absorbed in itself as if dreaming or thinking in shapes because it cannot yet think in concepts. This process will, if consciously considered, bring us a step nearer to self-knowledge and to an understanding of our souls. But it is also true that there is a decisive slowing down in the life of the idea the more its actual aim is attained. The above example already shows how soon the rate of development slackens. If we pursue the history of life further, we will find that general growth stops before a quarter of a lifetime has passed, and that torpidity, retrogression, and atrophy increasingly set in. These processes again exert an effect on the conscious life of the soul and prove that any finite manifestation can only be imperfect in the light of the infinite and must sooner or later dissolve again and disappear. If we now inquire into the development of particular systems and special structures and further organic growth, one phenomenon must be particularly stressed. It has always been suggested in general, but must now be more accurately defined in view of its higher significance. We refer to the fusion of those first units, the primary cells, into even greater wholes. Although cell formation is the start of everything in the organism, it is also true that these cells gradually merge into all higher structures. Although cell formation is the start of everything in the organism, it is also true that these cells gradually merge into all higher structures. Nerve fibres, muscle fibres, vessels and membranes disappearing as single units. The unconscious thus already shows what will finally become a higher life task in the realm of consciousness, the loss of the particular in the general. It is a strange yet significant fact that not all the original shapes disappear. Some remain absolutely themselves in two areas of the body, first in the very primitive and elementary area, in such things as blood corpuscles and the continually renewed cells of the epithelium, and second, where the elementary must persist at the highest so that an effective mental process can develop from this polarization, i.e. in the nerves and brain. The foregoing thus makes it evident that the nervous system is the organic system most significant for psychology. In man, and in the whole animal kingdom, the multiple organic systems for the various needs of physical existence are produced from the original semi-liquid cell matter by the unconscious creativity of the soul. Despite a quick rate of development in other areas, the substance in the nervous system still retains almost all the very delicate semi-liquid characteristics that were common to the entire organism at the beginning. This is where substance accumulates that, while neither separating into other disparate structures, nor really being organically polarised to anything else, retains the ability to change its tension and to be polarised to the finest mental radiation of the idea, unconscious feeling and conscious thought. Once the full significance of the structure has been grasped, its immense importance becomes clear. All higher development of the soul throughout life is based on this one point. Therefore, if these developments are not sufficiently understood, all attempts to grasp fully how a soul of higher energy lives in the body will fail. Only something that is most indeterminate itself, only the most delicate, 
semi-liquid elemental substance of the organism can be determined and permeated by the finest inner currents, emotions and differentiations. The manifestations of the divine in the infinitely varied physical world are most heterogeneous in this respect. A certain bipolar system can be discerned here. The most palpable and most massive substance with least expression of the idea lies at one pole of the physical world. The finest, most ethereal matter with the most powerful expression of the idea at the other. Stone as against the most highly developed nervous system. The rate of development of a complex organic form depends directly on the amount of this delicate semi-liquid substance in the germ of the organism. Similarly, a mature organism manifesting the slightest indications of the inner divine principle by altered inner energy conditions of flow and tension maintains that semi-liquid elementary cell substance throughout life. We can now explain what we have long known empirically. The higher or lower dignity of the divine original image of an organism, in a word, its more or less energetic soul, must be characterized and continually demonstrated in the nature and arrangement of its nervous system. Whether there is a higher degree of centralization in the nervous system, whether part of it, the brain, predominates in mass and refined structure over its radiations spread throughout the organism, whether these radiations, the nerves, are finer and more numerous, or coarser and fewer. All this is important in creating an opportunity for that centralization in the life of the soul on which, as we shall see later, the possibility of consciousness rests. Just because the nervous system is the most original and pure organism within the organism, it is secluded in the innermost depths and cannot possibly be in direct contact with anything outside the organism. Therefore, intermediary links must be formed, transmission systems to translate effects from outside to the nerves, i.e. the sensory organs. Whatever touches the nerve directly, such as an injury, induces only a state of suffering or pain. To transmit the effect of the nerve outward is primarily the function of the organs of movement, the muscles. But structures will develop to further protect the nerves by isolating them more completely, especially their central masses. A portion of the skeleton serves this purpose by protecting the nervous system. This gives us an idea of the great variety of organic systems necessary to the life of the soul. The constant exchange of substances with the outside world is as indispensable for material existence as the mutual exchange of feelings and reactions with the outside world is for mental existence. Special systems must be developed to effect this exchange. Indeed, they will be the first to assume definite form. The division of these systems devoted to material exchange, which bear a psychic signature since they result from the unconscious rule of the idea, is determined by 1. The need to absorb matter, 2. The need to discharge matter, and 3. The need to process matter internally. The digestive, respiratory, excretory and vascular systems take shape in a variety of organic cellular structures. Since, however, the appearance of individual organisms is intended to be transient, 
and since the idea of two species is given permanence only through endless repetition from generation to generation, the organism must contain a possibility for procreation. This gives rise to a special system for the continuation of the procreative process, thereby, on a higher level of development, through the development of sexual differences, to the means for the deepest possible relationship and exchange of influence between two souls. All this shows that a great variety of organic structures is necessary, although only one can be the focus, the basis for all the others. Only the nervous system may be said to be purely of the soul, the purest form of the divine in matter. A clear grasp of these relations is extremely important for any understanding of the life of the soul. Just as God reveals himself in the entire world, but according to our understanding, most purely in human nature, so the soul, the divine basic idea of man, reveals itself in the entire human organism, but most directly in the nervous system. Time spent contemplating these relations and intense mental effort to comprehend them will bring us to a clearer understanding. But first, of course, it is necessary to have a clear insight into the relationship between the ideal, which in the last resort conditions appearance, and the material wherein the ideal can become manifest. I have shown in my system of physiology that this is the point at which the physics of the organism merges into metaphysics, since one must postulate a division both external to and higher than actual existence. Actuality, we ourselves, the world, everything, exists only because it is at once and inseparably both idea and substance. And yet we ourselves can differentiate in our own minds between these really inseparable entities by rising above nature metaphysically. We then call the one the idea, the image of being prior to all existence, the divine thought, the primordial image, which is eternally true to itself, without time and space, moved only by the divine and not subject to time and space, and the other the substance, or rather, in eternal movement, ether, that in which the idea makes its appearance, the eternally moving, the eternally truly moved, that which conditions time and space throughout this movement. Thus we somehow hold apart in thought something that in actuality and essence is eternally united and indivisible. The inseparability of idea and ethereal substance does not imply that one and the same element is perpetually or even over a long period of time bound to one and the same idea, or always determined by the same idea. On the contrary, the eternally mobile, etheric substance must constantly fall apart and draw together. The same idea continually comes to life in new ether. Every idea lives in continually fresh metamorphoses in ever different and new substances. Thus we see a constant coming together and drawing apart of the elements, now slower, now quicker, now unnoticeable, now en masse, never st stagnant, never stagnant, never absolutely inert, never a completely constant union of the same potentials. And in this process lies, to put it simply, the eternally changing world. At this point, 
I can neither discuss the basic concept further, nor polemicize against differing doctrines. There are truths man must find within himself, truths towards which, as Goethe said, man must be oriented. And those who have not inwardly realized this cannot be convinced from the outside. Consequently, all this is left to the reader's perception of truth. Perhaps the following presentation of the life of the soul will bring increasing conviction that here again truer understanding can only be reached if we start from this root. Let us remain, however, with the development of the inner juxtaposition and structure of the organism, governed and conditioned by an unconscious force. Close attention should also be paid to how certain trends in the life of the soul have to become especially manifest in the various organic systems. We have demonstrated their necessity above. We found that only the nervous system may be considered purely a function of the soul itself, while the other systems serve to relate the individual to the outside world. Only the nervous system is therefore purely of the soul in itself an indifferent static entity, showing only characteristic and mysterious currents, rather like magnetic and galvanic currents. The other systems, whose structures developed from one basic general substance that is essentially the same as the semi-liquid substance of the nervous system, also originated through the unconscious working of the idea and through the development of its life within organic matter. They are also up to a point of the soul. Though at first only unconsciously, they also share in the life of the soul and can be brought to at least partial consciousness as a latter stage through the conscious life in the nervous system. We shall now examine these various radiations of spiritual existence in closer detail to show how certain so-called special souls or soul spheres are in this way established within the soul. What is normally, and has been shown wrongly, called the doctrine of the sympathy of body and soul depends on an understanding of these spheres. Apart from the organs of sense and movement, and the skeleton, which are most closely related to the nervous system, the special subdivisions of the organism are those for nutrition, with some serving the absorption and distribution of matter, and others its decomposition and excretion. Later are divided into those which break down external matter to utilize it for nutrition, like bile secretion, etc., and those which activate and enliven such inner functions as breathing. Finally, the procreation of the species becomes the task of a particular organic system. Since each of these provinces, each of these systems, results from a particular unconscious dominant of the soul, a special Dominion for each of them must exist in the characteristic inner emotion of the soul, with the power to give its own particular cast to consciousness once it has developed. This is the origin of those peculiar moods felt in the conscious life of the soul, feelings, that are seemingly reflected into consciousness from organic processes that were themselves caused by certain unconscious psychic tendencies. These moods may be considered as special circles in which one and the same feeling reveals itself as now heightened, now lessened, now in its positive, now in its negative aspect. We shall only mention the most important processes of this type, 
There will, however, be opportunity for conclusive observations later on. In the psychic aspect of the nutritional sphere, for instance, the primary feeling in its positive aspect is based on a lively assertion of existence and in its negative aspect on stunted growth and misery. This feeling is at the bottom of many conditions found in the conscious life of the soul. A good supply of healthy blood and strong cardiac activity are accompanied by, or rather are themselves, an unconscious mood of the soul, which with developed consciousness is felt as courage and vitality. Diminished vitality of the blood, major loss of the blood, weak heart activity, and slackness of its texture is conversely mirrored psychologically as depression, fear, and a feeling of general weakness and inadequacy. It is easy to see that it is immaterial from which side, the purely organic or the purely psychic, these indispositions were initiated. A constant state of fear and low spirits caused by exterior conditions produces the above-mentioned pathological conditions of the blood. Everything shows that we should always consider both as one. The same is true in the sphere of the absorption of matter. Life in the digestive system, which brings a wealth of elementary substance into the organism, is psychologically expressed in the pleasure or pain arising from the feeling of a presence somehow made real. Conditions that appear as pleasant in the feeling of satiety and in pleasing taste, or anything conducive to that condition, or as unpleasant in the feeling of craving, hunger, thirst and aversion to inedible foods are thus conveyed into the highest conscious sphere. But the latter occurs only when the nervous system is involved. The digestive system is what really thirsts and hungers, or lives in a state of satiety, not the nervous system itself. The digestive system is a modification of the entirely unconscious. The purpose of this modification is to supply the organism with new matter. Plants can also thirst or be satisfied, but they are incapable of raising this obscure feeling to any kind of real sensation, and therefore experience neither the pleasant feeling of satiety nor the unpleasant feeling of thirst. We now need a proper word for these feelings of the unconscious life of the soul. We have to revert to the strangest paraphrases if we want to achieve any kind of understanding of what we really mean. It is very natural that such terms are found late in language or have to be coined. I have already pointed out that the understanding of the unconscious in consciousness is everywhere the last and highest aim of science just as talent only turns into the highest art where it becomes unconscious again. Because this intrusion of consciousness into the realm of the unconscious only becomes a task in the deepest and most searching examinations, the need for words of such a nature appears late. I have pointed this out in detail in the introduction to the chapter on nerves in my system of physiology, and suggested having shown that Bacon had already felt the need for such words, the use of the word sentience, perceptio, to designate the unconscious feeling of the part of the soul that still lives only in an organic structure. Since this term has been established in physiology and psychology, further discussion will be greatly facilitated. 
The sentience of the soul in the life of the vascular or the digestive system is therefore that which alone conditions all the moods whose reflection in conscious life are enumerated as courage or despondency, a feeling of satiety or want. Even though the conscious mind very definitely receives these feelings from the nervous system, their cause naturally cannot be found in it. Again, this cause can be none other than the unconscious feeling received from the condition of the non-nervous systems. Sensation, the conscious feeling, is possible only in the life of the system that is purely of the soul, i.e. of the nervous system. The nervous system, however, does not live merely in itself, but is the system central to all of the others through which it enters into mutual contact with the outside world. This is why it can absorb the condition of those intermediate systems and act as a conduit linking the sentience of one system to another. For this reason, only the nervous system can raise these sentient messages to the level of sensations. Therefore, the plant has sentience, and so has each primary cell and each non-nervous structure in animal and man. Even the sensitivity of the nerves, as long as there is no perfect centricity of nervous life, or when it is no longer there, can be nothing more than sentience. Thus one cannot say, for instance, that the embryo feels, nor can one say that that of the newborn, since there have been brainless monsters whose nervous systems do not possess a central point. In both cases there is only an unconscious susceptibility to and conducting of stimulation a sentience, but not sensation. I should mention here that just as we lack a definite linguistic term for these unconscious feelings of the present self, we have equally no definite word for what I call the unconscious remembrance by the organism of its past, or for its equally unconscious prescience of the future. We therefore have to try creating one so as to make it easier to demonstrate later how so many other things in conscious life develop from these faculties, and how Gradually, the unconscious develops into consciousness. It is quite interesting to see that there has long been a fairly accurate term for the Promethean feelings, whose significance for the development of the organism has been discussed above. It never really reached man's complete consciousness, always remaining in a certain obscurity in the words presentiment and prescience, even though they still indicate a certain consciousness. The Epimethean aspect has never been noticed in its unconscious form and is completely without any proper term. The term memorance for the unconscious feeling of the past is certainly most apt. I wish to make it clear at this point that in this study the terms sentience, memorance and presentiment will be used in this meaning as opposed to sensation, remembrance and foresight. Continuing with the structure of the organism, its special systems and its sentiences, let us discuss the respiratory and excretory systems. In a way, both have opposite functions in regard to body nourishment. The first is important for permeating the internal organs with fresh, life-giving ether, so that the body in general is constantly energised and re-energised. The other is characterised by a drop-by-drop -drop release of inner secretions, frequently for the purpose of providing the body with the ability to resist foreign bodies. Consequently, 
the psychical aspect of sentience in both is completely different. That obscure feeling when emerging into consciousness is felt as courage, energy, cheerfulness, ease of movement originates in the respiratory system as long as it is functioning perfectly. Just as its opposite, fright, reluctance, fear, appears when breathing becomes oppressed or constrained. Without breathing, the sentiences at the root of these sensations would remain entirely foreign to us. The more a creature is permeated by breathing, the more it is governed by these sentiences. Insects and birds are pertinent examples. Their flightiness, which is only possible through strong breathing, has even given a name to a characteristic of some human emotions. The most important secretions are those that deaden extraneous substances and assimilate them into the organism. Since these processes are far more hidden and removed from the will than breathing, their sentience is further from consciousness. However, a number of unconscious sentiences enter consciousness from this area also, and acquiring a deadening, hateful cast. The expression, bitter mood, is as characteristic for the sentiences of the excited liver system as flightinesses for the liveliest breathing. Such examples are quite suitable to clarify the emergence of consciousness from the unconscious, which will be discussed later in great detail. In particular, they bring an increasingly clearer understanding of what is usually termed the body's influence upon the soul and the soul's influence on the body. All this merely means that obscure sentiences influence conscious feeling in the rational soul and vice versa. If, for example, blood loss decreases the life of the heart and vessels, and secondarily the life of the lungs, the negative aspect of the sentiences belonging to these systems comes into play at the same time. A change in the basic idea of the organism also reflects, since, it is, since its systems are partial ideas of it, and decisively different moods spread into the region of conscious thinking, feeling, and willing. A mood of depression, despondency, and weakness, which may go as far as fainting, lack of consciousness. These facts do not show the predominance of the body as something independent of and in opposition to the soul. This notion can be discarded when it is seen that the body is no more than an aspect of the soul itself. Rather, these facts show the influence of the blood and respiratory life on the more purely psychical nervous life. Finally, the sexual sphere, the system for the procreation of the species, provides particular cause for such deliberation. In this system, which develops later than all others, the difference between the individual life and the life of the species is most definitely proclaimed. In it, a whole new creature separates from the old. In it rests all the joy of newly developing life and all the pain of a declining one. At the same time, it is much more complete than all the other systems. Moreover, it does not stand in a one-to-one -one relation to any of them, but rather, since it reproduces the whole, it stands equal to the whole. Therefore, its sentences can rule the entire organism in a most unique manner. We often see in the animal kingdom an entire individual existence devoted only to this system. The animal achieves sexual union, and in many cases this completes the cycle of its life. Therefore, 
The possibility of an exceedingly intense inner pleasure and happiness lies in this region of the human soul. Language has a special word for it, voluptuousness. The communication of the liveliest, highest sentience of the unconscious sphere of the sexual system to the highest conscious sphere of the nerves. In the conscious soul, elevated and spiritualized, voluptuousness gives rise to the mightiest of passions, including that of the greatest happiness and the greatest pain, love. If we now review these facts as a whole, after this brief survey of the boundaries of various organic provinces and the various sentiences of the unconscious soul, the following important facts emerge for the doctrine of the life of the soul. 1. The unconscious reign of the idea determines the arrangement of physical development into various systems. Each system is the realization of one particular aspect of ideal psychical existence. 2. The nervous system is the true and proper psychical system, since only the higher concentration of its sentiences can develop into consciousness. 3. In every other organic system, the soul is capable only of a special sphere of unconscious sentience. This can only be communicated to consciousness if branches of the true and proper psychical system are intertwined with them, take up their sentiences, and thus transmit them to the nerve center. An awareness of the original variety of these systems and their particular sentiences, therefore, furnishes a starting point for an effective view of the inner multiplicity that began as a unity, and of the various spheres of the soul dwelling in any higher life of the soul. Long before we are conscious of a multitude of concepts and feelings, the soul is unconsciously revealed in life as manifold. Only a clear insight into the variety of its spheres of life, later centred in the realisation of the ego, can provide us with a suitable concept of the life of the soul. In short, we must provide the statement at the beginning of this study. The key to an understanding of the conscious life of the soul lies in the region of the unconscious.